you're listening to Tiger Country, because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joan Bowes, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats, and steak. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the late, latest episode of uh, Tiger Country. Again, we're, we're doing something a little bit different this week. Instead of picking a specific trauma topic, we thought we'd broaden all our horizons and have a discussion about something that is uh, becoming a little bit more prevalent in trauma and acute care surgery, and that is the, the mythical unicorn uh, two of whom uh, always join me on this podcast, Dr. Kundi and Dr. DuBose, who are our dual-trained trauma ACS surgeons, Dr. Kundi and Dr. DuBose, obviously uh, going uh, the vascular route. This week, we are joined by uh, Dr. Uh, Pedro Teixeira and Dr. Chad Ball. Dr. Teixeira, uh, additional specialty is vascular, and Dr. Ball uh, is a hepatobiliary surgeon as well as a trauma ACS surgeon. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, it's great to have you. Great being here. Yeah, pleasure. <clears throat> a real honor. Thanks, guys. So once upon a time, uh, a surgeon could pretty much do everything. Um, cases were plentiful. Experience was just about waking up in the morning and letting it hit you square, uh, square in the chest the minute you walked into the hospital. But things have changed substantially now. Um, advancements in medical care, non-op management, minimally invasive procedures, tertiary and quaternary care centers. It's, uh, it's hopefully led to better patient care and experience, but potentially a hyper-focusing of a surgeon's skill set. Um, would you both share some of your thoughts on the good and the bad of where modern surgery is taking surgeons today? Well, I can definitely chime in. I think um, technology has evolved so much in such a short period of time. And, and with uh, specialization, as you get more and more concentrated in a single field, you have access to technology that otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't even imagine. So that's that's good for the patient. That's good for us, right? Being able to play with different toys and have like the challenge not only of taking care of a lesion of a disease disease process, you also have the challenge of learning additional tools, additional skills. So that that becomes really a good personal challenge, and it's a fulfilling thing to be able to do. But then you. In many ways, you can lose the, the you know the the big picture vision. You can lose the ability to navigate through different body cavities and to and to see the patient as a whole. You know there there are many situations where you pay attention to that one thing that you're highly spe specialized to taking care of, and you and you forget the the whole environment, uh, the whole the whole scenario that that is happening right in front of your eyes. So I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, I, I enjoy that 
and in, in, in many ways, those of us in this call, we're, we're avoiding this super specialized thing by maintaining our broad uh, practice in, in trauma. Uh, but it's a, it's a trap that you can easily fall into. Yeah, I agree entire, Pedro, entirely. Um, you know, the things I would add to that is, is looking at you guys who I consider uh, certainly collegial and, and probably friends that, you know, all of us trained under some pretty iconic names across this, this planet and certainly in the U.S. And that model to some extent of an individual surgeon who can really do a broad-based practice that really, really addresses anything that comes through the door at a deep level is probably gone. And I think, you know, for sure, we all have very broad practices and, and you know, Pedro, I completely agree, but there is something really neat about um, trying to add on or combine fellowships or do extra because it, it not only clinically changes the way you look at each of those fields, it allows for fusion within them. It changes your your research or your your inquisition in your brain, uh, I think substantially. And I, I think the benefit over the thirty or so years after the extra couple of years or three or four years up front in terms of fellowship training is is certainly worth it. So, um, I, you know, I think the days of a Dave Feliciano, for example, in, in my scenario, who really truly did everything. Um, are probably probably gone, and I would suggest that if if David was on a call with us, he would also say that, you know, uh, say Joe uh, doing his vascular um, percutaneous work is at a totally different level than Dr. Feliciano could ever have imagined. He would say the same thing about me doing liver and pancreas work, and uh, I think it's all it's all supplementary. It's all helpful. Yeah, the great paradox here is that we all want to become our those who trained us, those icons that we looked after and, and to become Feliciano, to become Dimitriades, to become Scalia and the other names that have influenced all of us that uh, you, you kind of have to do this in some ways, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because of the technology driven piece. Chad, I know, and I know Pedro and I have a very similar, identical practice almost. He's the division chief, so he has those extra pieces to deal with, but uh, we have identical practice. I work with Rishi. I know what his practice looks like. And I've kind of, I can talk people through how practices look like on the vascular trauma front. Yours fascinates me because it's, 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 it's almost, it's very longitudinal. I do a lot of vascular, but a lot of it's kind of acute care vascular to some degree. I see clinic and I see those longitudinal patients, but nothing spells to me like a patabiliary. Like, you know, these are patients you have to see quite frequently, right? So, and it's typically a longitudinal relationship that's very involved and intense. So first, I, I want to ask you, why did you decide to combine a patabiliary and acute care surgery? And then what does your week look like? What is your month? What's your schedule like? How do you divide it up? Yeah, it's a fun conversation. So, you know, if I'm totally honest, when I was a junior resident, I thought I would do trauma injury, acute care surgery, whatever um, sort of descriptor you want to you want to use pretty early. I, I figured that out from really great mentors that I had up here in Canada um, and then South Africa as well. I honestly thought I would do vascular and fuse that with trauma like you guys have done. That was sort of the plan. And then I rotated on transplantation service and an HPB service. And I, I sort of just saw different angles and I thought, you know, maybe that's a better fusion, not better, maybe that's the wrong term, uh, but it's different. And there wasn't a lot of people that I'd ever heard of doing that hybrid. 
Um, maybe you guys know some, but certainly now I know two or three beyond that. Um, so it was it was the it was different. It was interesting. Clearly, whether you do vascular or HPV, it's going to help you. You know, keep your hands in very large cases that are that are high risk. Um, you know, I've said publicly before that the patient populations, as you guys know, couldn't be more different. Probably like your vascular, you know, groups in in some ways too. I kind of like that. Like I like looking after the 17 year old who was shot doing bad things and then walking down the, the hall and talking to my grandma who's 69 with a bad pancreatic cancer that we're going to Applebee her for. Like, I like that variety and I haven't gotten tired of it to date, but that, that was sort of the genesis of, of, of where I came from. And there was some, you know, as all of us, I think some people along that road from pancreas surgeons like Peter Allen and um, all the way to Andy Nichol in Cape Town, you know, who had wished he had done HPV and fused it with trauma. A lot of little voices here and there. And just up front, like you guys, I was willing to make the time commitment and I've never regretted it. It's been fun. My week is a little bit of a disaster. Yeah, as, as, <laughs> as, you, uh, yeah, as you guess. Um, no week looks, looks similar. Um, on our trauma service here, 365, 24-7, like you guys, uh, we have uh, six people looking after it. Um, so it's an equal one in six uh, distribution. And then the HPB practice, I think, is really what you're getting at. That's a, that's a monster. It doesn't stop. Um, Doing the vicinity of close to 300 major HPB resections a year, split evenly between liver and pancreas. So the volume is certainly uh, uh, pretty good up here. It's a, there are regional centers in Canada, so there is no competition. You drain millions of people into your into your center. Um, so the, the volumes are high, and it's a, a little bit of a 2.0 job, but I would argue that you know you guys probably do exactly the same, and it's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure. Yeah, well, let me ask you this, Scott. You obviously deal with general surgery trainees across the board in both of these contexts. What, what do you think is the benefit and how do you approach taking a, a, trauma, a resident on the trauma service into one of your potability cases? I know when I'm doing a vascular case, I, even if it's peripheral vascular disease, I, I, I say, you know, we're doing this this way because there's atherosclerotic disease and those kind of things. But if it was trauma, I would do it this way. Uh, do you find that that's similar? What's the, what's the frame shift moving with the trainee from trauma into the potability cases? Yeah, that's a fun question too. And I, I don't know this, Joe, but I bet if you, if someone came in and watched you and I doing those elective cases, I bet you the language that we're using in our, our, our brains, our prism is filtered the same way. Um, it, it's the same sort of stuff. Like, you know, the upper abdomen is about exposure, as you know, rapid exposure at that. And so that's a huge part, I think, of what you take the general surgery trainees and the fellows through, to be quite honest. Um you know, the, the fellow is, is maybe a little bit of an untouched piece because you think, well, you're doing an HPV and transplant fellowship. So, you know, what do you care about trauma? But the reality is a lot of these folks go throughout the world. You know, we train a lot of international people in Canada and they're doing general surgery call and they're seeing major traumas, you know, half a dozen times a year. So it really does apply to everybody. And then the other thing I think particularly that surrounds liver and pancreas work is the ability, you know, as you, as you pointed out, maybe on the technology side to use staplers and and generate rapid exposure in a way that i don't think fundamentally and maybe maybe unnecessarily your average trauma acute care surgeon would really get and so 
you know, how to bring that liver up in 60 seconds, how to drop the hyalur plate and get to retrohepatic cava from the front immediately with a with an endo-GIA or like a laparoscopic state, those sorts of things, I think, um, some of those, those little tricks uh, are fun to teach too. Man, it makes me want to come and do some cases with you. I, I certainly <laughs> can get to the hydro plate in 30 seconds. But uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, well, you, you, you could. You should, you should come on up, man. We'll, we'll right. do we should, well, you know what? An exchange program. That's how we're going to maintain all these skill sets. Yeah. We go to Chad. You come to work with us. And we'll, we will rebuild the Dave Felicianos of the modern era. I love it. <laughs> we'll all be about 60 years old by the time all of our training is done. Yeah, we is will not have to <laughs> so Pedro, like myself, uh, Dr. DuBose, and hopefully Milos, uh, when he comes to his senses and the American government will permit him, you've decided to build a practice combining vascular and trauma acute care emergency surgery. So here's the question that I've been asked. I know that Joe's been asked. Are you a vascular surgeon who does general surgery or are you a general surgeon who does vascular? Well, uh, I think you have to go back to what your identity is, right? And if like down down to my core, I, I, I'm a trauma surgeon. I mean, that's how the whole thing started. That's the reason why I got excited about general surgery back home in Brazil. That's the reason why I came to the, the United States. I mean, it all goes down to the, the work we do in trauma. And it's very interesting having this discussion about hepatobiliary and vascular because I got to a, a, a place in my career that I, I, I said, I need to add another tool to my, to my skill set. And those were the two specialties that I considered, hepatobiliary and, and vascular, because those are going to be the things that get you in trouble in complex trauma care. And it's almost like I, I would have done both if I, if I were a little bit more, more crazy and a little bit younger, maybe. But it's a, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I, I brought vascular surgery into my trauma world and into, into my trauma practice. And of course, for you to be proficient in vascular, for you to be up to date with the technology that changes every day, the new devices, the new strategies that, uh, that add the endovascular approach to things, you absolutely need to have a considerable and significant practice in vascular surgery proper, right? You need to be doing reconstructive vascular surgery to be able to apply those, those skills, to be able to incorporate the new things and, and be up to date with the research, things that are coming out uh, into, the, into the trauma world. So the vascular trauma stuff that we do is, this, is the, the small part of vascular of trauma surgery care, but it's the part that I really have fun doing. Those are the cases that, I mean, Joe and I sit down and we talk about it and you always try to bring like the new things we're doing in vascular to, to that area of trauma. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. I mean, I, I, I am a trauma surgeon. I am a vascular surgeon. I am both of them. I split my time equally across those two disciplines. It creates several challenges even to so how much time you dedicate to the societies that's a that's a bigger question because you know uh, the trauma guys see you as trauma but you you're not fully trauma because you're vascular in the vascular world is the same thing because uh, this guy's the trauma surgeon that uh, you know it's 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 challenging 
And there are not many of us that understand why we do this. So that was, that, was a, that was a great answer and very timely. I was actually, forget about how much time to devote. I was complaining to one of my colleagues about how much money I'm spending with both vascular society membership and trauma <laughs> society membership. Yeah. It, it's also, it's very interesting. My take on it, my experience is completely opposite from yours. I, I consider myself a vascular surgeon and one of the things that drove me back to trauma was as my practice progressed, I was like five or six years out and I felt myself getting tunnel vision, uh, like physiologically, procedure wise. And I could, I just felt like I was becoming a technician. And so it's, it's kind of the reverse of, of the order that you described, but it's also very much rooted in the same ideas. So what does your practice on a weekly basis look like? Talking about dividing time, how do you have both a trauma clinic and a vascular clinic? Yeah, so uh, I take the same amount of trauma calls as all my uh, trauma partners. We share it equally, just the same model that Chad described. Initially, my early days, I also had a responsibility in, in surgical critical care coverage. That part I don't do anymore because there's no, no room in the, in the week to do that kind of stuff. So I do the trauma rounding, I do trauma calls, uh, which in our in our shop is acute care surgery. So emergency general surgery is, is included in when I say trauma call. And then I have vascular surgery clinic where I see my elective patients. We have a significant number of lower extremity revascularizations. A lot of what you do is limb salvage, um, the dialysis axis, some aortic wor uh, work. So my usual week, and I typically have one trauma call a week, one weekend of trauma call a month, and then everything else uh, is occupied by my elective, uh, elective and emergent vascular uh, practice. What you're describing is um, definitely my experience. I, I know Milos was very kind and charitable to describe us all as acute care trauma surgeons. I am not an acute care surgeon. Uh, you do not want me uh, treating your appendicitis um, because you have you have to pick a major you know you have to decide what two things maybe three things you want to do with that in mind um, there is as um, all of us know and I'm sure most of our listeners know something that I can't really describe it as a raging debate so much as a wound that is approaching a chronic inflammatory lesion uh, between vascular and trauma about who should be doing what for vascular injury. Um, Pedro, I'll start with you, but I would like to hear everyone say uh, their opinion about what a trauma surgeon who is not dual trained should do and how do we bridge the gap? This isn't just about vascular, it's about any specialty, uh, particularly, yeah, I mean, vascular because that's come up the most, but absolutely hepatobiliary fits in there. How do we integrate and coordinate with trauma surgeons um, that's in the best interest of the patient. Well, this is going to be the conundrum we are in, especially with the, the way people are getting trained nowadays and the amount of exposure they have. Because, you know, when it becomes difficult in a trauma patient, it's difficult for everyone, right? And we know that there are many areas in which the, a specialist, a surgeon that specializes in a, a particular problem, can be of great help. So um, 
in my opinion, would be less uh, what should a trauma surgeon do, but more how we create an environment in, in which this cross-pollination, this cooperation is happens in a collegial and cooperative way, because this is what really helps the patient. If you are a patient, if you are someone injured with a complex anatomically and physiologic problem to fix, you want the best people with the most, most skills to take care of you, right? So, and, and, if, and what would that be? That would be a team of people that can take care of it. So I would say most, in most big trauma centers, you would need people like us. No, really would, because people like us, they can bridge. Uh, we understand what's happening on the trauma side. We understand what's happening on the vascular or on the hepatobiliary side. And we are inclined to collaborate because our passion for both specialties. What we frequently see in places where this does not exist, there is an antagonism. There is, so a, a lot of the times, uh, the specialist is upset if he or she does not get called for a complex injury, but also gets upset if he or she does get called, right? Because if, if I don't get called and then there's a complication I need to fix later, I'm upset because it didn't call me. And then if you call me, I say, why are you calling me? You call yourself a trauma surgeon. Why can't you fix this issue? So I think more than, than delineating to what extent a trauma surgeon will take care of each specific injury, I think I think I would I would put in a more philosophical in a more in a way that you approach the problem, creating a system that's going to be very individualized depending on each and every institution. But I think the mentality should be the same anywhere you go. You know, if if both the trauma surgeon and wh whatever specialty is the most likely to be helpful in a challenging situation, if these guys have a great relationship, you know, if you're sharing time in the OR lounge, if you're get, grabbing lunch together uh, at the hospital, I mean, you're cooperating in research, you're writing papers together, you are training residents together. So, so if that's the environment that we're nurturing, I think when someone like that uh, gets called into a case, I mean, I, you come in to have fun, right? I mean, uh, when I get called by my, my trauma partners to help in a case, it's typically I go, I go and I go knowing that we're going to enjoy this because this is an injury that, oh, Carlos Brown is in trouble. I let me go help him out. And, and I enjoy I enjoy participating and, and doing those cases together and sharing my, my specific abilities that I think I can add to the case. So I think that's, that's how we should see this problem. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, Dr. Ball? Yeah, I don't think I can say it any better than Pedro. I mean, you have a captive audience here, and I think we're all thinking the same the same way. Um, you know, part of my, my um, self-defined mission has been to try and um, ensure that we're all giving education to uh, environments and surgeons and physicians that don't have the luxury of working in the environments that we do with all this multidisciplinary care. Um, you know, it's really easy for me to say, send all the bile duct injuries and send all the massive pancreas smashes, but that of course is not, not going to happen. So uh, I agree with Pedro entirely. If you work in an environment where you can pull all that expertise and help in 
it's really incumbent upon all of us to create collegial groups that that do that well. Um, if you work in an environment where that's not an option and and you can't do that, then you're going to have to acquire some skills. Uh, maybe that would be seen as quote unquote inappropriate in some of our institutions, and and that's good too. I think you have to come to it with love and understanding, and and realizing what that individual clinician or group is dealing with at their their particular hospital setting. And um, you know, just because all of us will fix, well, I, I speak for myself. I don't do any endovascular work, of course, but I'll do anything that's open that's appropriate to be open, but just because I'm doing that doesn't mean even my partners here in Canada at my site um, would do that. And it doesn't mean you have to do that in a, in a setting that that's different. I think you just got to be honest. And as Pedro said, and as all, all of us know, the patient comes first. And if that's within your wheelhouse, that's great. If you need help, you should ask for it. And if you can't achieve it, you should transfer it if you can. I think that collegiality and dare I say being friends uh, with your coworkers goes a long way in overcoming the natural reluctance of the surgeon to think, I think maybe someone else can do this better than I can. Maybe I should call them. It's different when they're your friend. It's easier. Yeah, and it's fun too. Like I, I love the way that you use that word, Pedro, because I, I think that's perfect. This should be fun. This should be a fun job and it should be fun for me to go into Pedro's OR or Joe's OR and say, holy mackerel, the way that you moved your wrist in that way or this little trick, like keep it coming at all times. And as long as you approach all of this stuff, I think with that earnest sponge attitude, I think our jobs are amazing. They're incredible, fun. Well, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> That's right. Milos. Yeah, I mean, it, it's being being the even though I'm I'm bolding aggressively and the gray hairs keep coming, being the most junior person on the call, listening to everything, being able to absorb all the wisdom is 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 fantastic. I, Dr. Debose and and Dr. Kundi know mainly because they're like my number two on my phone speed dial. Anytime I'm I have a thought, I immediately call them. Um, I love vascular trauma, just like Dr. Tashera said. You know, to to me, it's the most challenging part of trauma um and as most of my trainees know and my colleagues know and my former co-residents know that i think you know we need to dedicate more time to be great um lots of it in fact um and seeing as you both have dedicated additional time i was hoping you could share some advice for young surgeons like myself and those folks coming up behind us who want to do additional training, one, two, um, three fellowships, if I can catch my wife in, in the right mood. Um, how, what were some of the challenges that um, you guys faced and what are, what are some of your most important takeaways? Well, I think, I think Chad mentioned that in, in, after 30 years, those two extra years of that additional training, won't mean much in terms of time, but it means immensely in terms of experience, immensely. And over the years, you'll see how, how much benefit you get out of that experience. And everyone's path is going to be a little bit different. My path was not 
equal to any one of those in the call. I mean, because each of us have different opportunities as you move along your training and, and even the way you, you think, like you, you change your mind and okay, you, as a general surgery trainee, you, you notice that the landscape is changing, like the endovascular stuff is growing or complex hepatobiliary reconstructions are the challenge upon in trauma. And then you decide to do that, that extra training. So uh, the question of when to do it, where to do it, a lot of it is going to depend on the, on the person and the, and the specific situation. For me, I did uh, the, my training in the United States. I did all three fellowships at USC. It made sense to, for me. It was my home at the time. Uh, I had strong personal bonds with uh, the faculty in both areas, which facilitated my transition between the, the two specialty and getting the training that the training that I needed and that I wanted. Um, Time-wise, I did my surgical critical care fellowship in the middle of the residency, so I broke my general surgery residency and then did vascular at the end. But I think those things uh, can can change a lot. I mean, some of, of, of the people in this call practiced for a time and then came back and, and did the, the training later. That can be challenging. That can be challenging because you you become an attending and then you become a trainee again <clears throat> with all with all the peculiarities of being in training, right? So <clears throat> I don't know if there is a perfect way of doing. Um, I would say the earlier you do it, the better. I mean, it's just the most efficient way. Uh, finding the right place for you, for your family at the time, you know, you financial considerations when you you enter the workforce is going to be important. Each, each person is going to be different. Uh, but I do think the point that Chad made about these these two years in 30 years, they, they mean nothing. They mean nothing in terms of time, but they mean so much in how how that changes the way you practice and the way you see things. Dr. Ball, your thoughts? Yeah, I, again, I can't say it any better. Um, I, I agree. It's... Uh... It's also a real special privilege to be able to do this and try and fuse these areas. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a short run and you get a long slide after it, which is not too many things in life though, where that's the case. Um, Tiger Country's influence is, is far reaching. You know, we have thousands and thousands of, of listeners, uh, students, young faculty, old faculty, as everyone else on this call thinks about what the future of surgery looks like. And if you were going to say, you know, it, if I could go back and do something, I would do this particular subspecialty, or more importantly, as we look at the future and we try and guess which specialty is um, gonna be most important, what would you advise young surgeons out there if they were interested in doing additional training what would they what should they be looking at doing well i think the 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 main issue is to concentrate on a solid solid foundation in general surgery i think that sets you uh well for whatever comes next uh choosing what additional uh, specialty may depend on what the strengths that your program had 
in, in general surgery. Some programs are very strong in vascular during, during general surgery. Some pro programs are not. Some programs are very heavy in surgical oncology and hepatobiliary and, and complex colorectal and, and overall GI reconstructions and other programs are not. So the additional training uh, can serve both as a, as a complement to a, weak, a weaker part of your general surgery training but also to take you to the next, the next level, as we discussed here. So I think, again, it's really difficult to say, oh, this is the best path for everyone. I think you, you really need to have some introspection, very critically assess how strong your, your training is uh, in general surgery to see what areas you, you could benefit from additional training, and also the opportunities, Mills, because... You know, an opportunity of, of having an additional fellowship in vascular, for example, in a great program may come and present to you, uh, and, and that's something to, to really consider. You know, so I think the, the way life sometimes just opens doors for you, and I, I, I think you just need to be prepared to be able to go through that door. So that's why I said I emphasize a solid general surgery training, keep your mind open, try to get exposure to as much as much of the specialties in surgery as possible. And so that you will have the foundation. So the moment you have that opportunity, the moment that spark uh, appears in front of you and the moment you say, okay, I need to take this extra step uh, for my education, for my training, then you will be ready. And then the, the better prepared you are, the, mo the more you're going to get out of that additional training. Let me, uh, I'm going to kind of jump on a question I think Milos was going to ask and expand on it a little bit to roll into one that I was tasked with. But let's talk about trauma specifically now, right? So we have here what I would consider in this the skill set to, that makes sort of a, a really robust trauma surgeon. We're, we're not quite to David Feliciano in his time, but we're trying to acquire the skill sets to get there and re reconstruct that. Now, if we're trying, looking at the next generation of surgeons, we're trying to develop training programs. The acute care surgery fellowship was supposed to fix a lot of things, right? It was supposed to expand our experience into different areas, uh, afford us more time in hepatobiliary and transplant, afford us more opportunities to interact with vascular. But, you know, a lot of the literature, when you look at that, people are just doing more lap coles in the middle of the night mm -hmm. and those kind of things. So how do we fix that? What do you guys think? And I'm going to start with Chad here because I think hepatobiliary is, is really underrepresented um, in terms of exposure for, for trauma fellows. How do we fix the training paradigms to build that out and optimize and build that trauma surgeon 3.0? Yeah, it's a good question, Joe. I, I don't know the answer. I think about that often too. I, I, I agree with you. The modern acute care surgery fellowship is great for many, many, from many perspectives. Um, it may or may not be an improvement from some of the historically high volume two-year experiences and some of our uh, sort of legacy centers in, in the U.S. and the world, but uh, it's great in many ways. But I, I do think it has missed the mark a little bit and sort of the underlying tone of what you're saying is is true and you know if you look at that data that's been published not only in the U.S. but also in Canada also in parts of Europe your statement about 
the, the mix of cases is exactly right. It's an extra bowel obstruction, an extra lap choline, an extra lap api in a given night. Does that really help you when you have a liver smash or an aortic injury or pancreatic transection? I, I'm not sure it does. And I realize that's a very heated debate that, you know, we can put 10 people on a podium and really watch a show. Uh, but in, in my mind, I don't necessarily think it does at all. So it comes back to, you know, Pedro's comment about um, really being collegial and creating environments where we can have some of these exchanges. And I'll, I'll take it right into the HPB fellowship world. You know, we have a very, very rigorous through the HPBA and the fellowship council stream and, and requirements from ultrasonography all the way into liver and pancreas, small and large laparoscopic open, all those, all those really um, essential thresholds that if they're not met, you're not, you're not certified. In the context of that, there is some programs that quite simply are pure cancer centers, as you would imagine, and they don't get to see enough benign disease, i.e. bile duct injuries, i.e. really bad pancreatitis. And so they do away rotations or, or swap rotations, depending on what that program needs. Maybe you don't see enough CLAT scan, hyaluronic carcinomas at your institution. Maybe you see four a year instead of 20. You might need to go to Memorial or come to Calgary and see some of that stuff as well. And I think that, you know, going back to being friends with, with some of these other uh, uh, col colleagues, that environment within HPB has really been very uh, uh, collegial and, and I think been successful in achieving some of those transfer of, of training scenarios. In, in the trauma side of things, I, my impression is we do a, a less great job. But certainly we do in Canada and certainly in the places that I'm familiar with in the US as well. Um, I think there's room for growth and room for improvement. But I think that's probably where it's at. I want to come in again into Joe's OR or Pedro's OR and, and learn from you guys as a trainee and as a, as a staff member going forward always. Pedro, we've had a lot of discussions in the call room and stuff about this. <clears throat> is Chad's idea of this kind of, is it a traveling fellowship? Does ACS say, you know what, let's build this out. Let's make the super acute care surgery fellowship. They come to Austin or Houston for vascular for three months. They go visit Chad for three months. If no one institution is able to support it and, and no institution is perfectly well-rounded in that regard, is that the way to fix it? Or what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that that could be a strategy. And, and it's not only that it couldn't be a single institution to provide all those cases for the trauma fellow that, that needs to acquire that knowledge and those skills. Is also the majority of, of surgeons, like a vascular surgeons training people nowadays, um, they want to train a, a vascular fellow to become a vascular surgeon. There are not many uh, vascular surgeons that in train, in taking care of that trainee, have the, the patience and the, and the desire to train someone that's gonna go do the trauma surgery. So it would also be, so it's not just about the facilities and the institutions. It's also identifying people that see the value and want to be partners in this project of creating a new generation of trauma surgeons that are capable uh, in doing complex things, identifying problems that are challenging, benefiting from additional uh, additional skills in other areas uh, because I think the patient the patient benefits so convincing uh, those those uh, mentors 
that they would be able to to really benefit patients by dedicating some time to training those those uh, surgeons. I I think it's a it's an excellent it's a, an excellent strategy. Challenging though, if you think about it, a, a traveling fellowship in which you're going to be out of a year, you're going to be three months in in, in different places. Yeah. So living situations complicated, family because we're we're now talking about training later in your life, and the family situation is hard. Financially is is more complicated, so it is not easy. So that problem, uh, I I I don't know if we have an easy solution, but I do think sometimes maybe maybe even within an institution, uh, the specialists sometimes don't even talk. I mean, the vascular guys want to train the vascular fellows, the hepatobiliary guys want to teach people that will do transplant and they have no interest in training people that are not going to be in the specialty because they don't see the value of doing this. It's almost like it, it feels that you're wasting your time on imparting that knowledge into someone that really will not use that knowledge to the, to the, 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 the highest extent. But I think that, that, that notion is not correct. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that we could, we could really bring bring to our side yeah well i still like my idea of the traveling fellowship right? <laughs> it would be fun and, and I'm, I'm i'm putting a plea out here to all our because i know the half the american board of surgery listens to this podcast so i think they should be able to make that happen um <clears throat> so let's step back that's the highfalutin twenty thousand foot view we as leaders how are we going to change things now let's turn our attention because a lot of our listeners are residents who are interested right in this stuff Give your advice. I'll start with you, Pedro. What do you tell a third-year resident who calls you and says, I am interested. I want to be the best trauma surgeon I can be. Give me advice on how to, in the modern milieu, acquire all the skill sets that I'm going to need to be the best. Well, that depends on where you are. Uh, So you need to be realistic about your training program, right? Uh, not all places are going to see a lot of stab wounds and gunshot wounds and high-speed motor vehicle accidents every night. So, uh, and if you're if you're in a program that's not that busy, you need to you need to be creative in in making the opportunity and taking advantage of every single. I mean, there should not be a complex case going on in your institution that you're not part of. You should go in that OR and see. You need to see uh, uh, as many cases as you can possibly see during your residency. And then uh, with uh, help from your mentors and with help from, from people that are interested in growing this field, find a good place for you to do your fellowship. You know, And, and when, I, when I said about the fellowship being a complement of your training, I think that's a very important assessment when you have your strategy of where how you're going to rank your program, right? You, you should you shouldn't go to a place that's going to duplicate what you already did in general surgery. Your program might have weaknesses and strengths, and then you pick a, a, a fellowship program that will complement what you have uh, uh, built in terms of general surgery training. And then get close to people that want to teach you, close to people that that are doing interesting things, close to people that have a, an open mind and people that are pushing the envelope and people that will take time to, you know, introduce you to key players in the field and, and help you find a, a position that 
that you will you will acquire the the knowledge and the skills that that will will make a make your life good because we have I mean I have a lot of fun doing what I do and and part and and uh, some of the things that allow you to have fun doing the difficult work that we do is to be comfortable about what you can and cannot do being confident that you can take care of a difficult problem in the operating room allows you to enjoy it because there's nothing more stressful than get that that than facing a situation where you say what the heck am i doing here i have no idea what to do so that's very stressful so creating this situation where you 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 have the skills you have the experience and you have a network of people around you to support you as you are acquiring those skills that's what allow allows you to really enjoy the process which i think is very very important yeah uh chad dave feliciano who i got to have gotten to know later in his career is more intimately right when he was we overlapped shock trauma i still call him once a week and he loves to tell me the story about this fellow that he had at grady uh this ball kid who used to every time there was a bad trauma and dave would turn around chad ball would be standing there you know, and he, you, you manage to always find a way to get involved and know when things, when, when the good cases are going on, teach that to, what, what's your advice, what's your tips to figure out how to get invested into that for the residents who want to do the same? Yeah, you know, Joe, I don't, I don't know if I have tips and it, it didn't come from a, a high and mighty place. I suspect you gents were all the same on this call. I mean, it comes from pure interest and love and, and just wanting wanting to learn wanting to learn everything i think you know so much of what pedro said there was um was so so smart and so eloquent it, it's exactly right you, you know it goes back to the uh, what, what's seen as a little bit of effort maybe at the front end changes the next 30 years of your career i i, I didn't want to end up in situations that i hadn't seen and hadn't been engaged in full stop and i you know i always remember as a resident running into fellows and they would say, oh yeah, you know, I just I just started working and the first two years are crazy. I'm seeing stuff that I've never seen before. And it's why well, I'm learning more in the first two years of working than I did in all my seven or eight years of training before. When I think about that now, I I don't want to sound harsh, but I think that's a problem. I think you trained in, in maybe the wrong places. And I remember thinking sort of five years into work and wow, like there's, there's not a lot of really anything that I hadn't seen as a as a fellow trainee in the US and Canada in South Africa, like, we're often going here. And it, it's great. And it speaks to that comfort and that, that, um, you know, the, the fun nature, as, as, as you guys have pointed out. As a result, when trainees ask me, I'm pretty brutally honest about it. And the message I have is that volume matters, volume counts, and volume tends to trump most other issues. Now, I think we all know that's not entirely true because, you know, training volume, clinical volume is one thing, but you need the didactic component. You need the mentor component. You need the research component to go be able to go deep and create that foundation. But, you know, the reality is, I think globally, no matter what subspecialty you end up in, the best people tend to follow, not always, but tend to follow volume. So if you can find volume, you're going to find great people, not always, but almost always. And a lot of those elements will come with that volume. So for us in Canada, where, you know, really our, our country outside of Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, 
really does reflect the majority of America and will never meet, you know, Atlanta or Baltimore. I tell our, our guys, you, you got to go find volume. And so, you know, if you look at our group, for example, um, that does trauma call here, everyone's done a high volume at least one year, U.S., inner city or South African fellowship or sometimes both. And, you know, our, our last gent that we hired is like you guys. He's He did two years of vascular surgery in Ottawa. And then I sent him down to Houston with Brian and, and John and those guys when they were all together and and back he comes. And so that's the the model that that, that I send people out, out to. Um, and I don't think it's a lot different outside of trauma either, but it's it's really, I think, chase, chase volume in, in many ways. Yeah. Good advice, guys. Rishi? So one of the ways that I got volume was simply the timing of my additional training. Um, I got volume, you know, uh, by being a vascular surgeon for a few years before I, I went back for trauma. And absolutely my view on surgery, my medicine, my comfort in the OR uh, changed as a function of the number of cases I did. But I think each of us has arrived, you know, with it by a vastly different path um, to where we are now. And I was wondering what each of your opinions are, were on the timing, because certainly I have a number of fellows who come up to me at shock saying, should I do vascular right after doing my trauma fellowship? And my answer is invariably, absolutely not. Um, but I am I am curious as to your experience and what your opinion is on on timing for multiple trainings. Uh, I I think that's such a hard question. Uh, it, it's so dependent on each person's specific situation. You know, um, uh, I am not I I I was not afraid of going back to training after being in practice for a while. Uh, I had a whole residency before my residency. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't think people should be reluctant to, to going out, practicing in one specialty and then going back. But, you know, it, you need to have a humble personality. You need to, you need to know what you're getting into. Now, you can't go back to training and think that, oh, I was an attendee, I'll be treated as a, no, you, you're going to go as a, as a, and in many ways, you will just be a trainee because you, you may be very experienced in, in, in one of the, the specialties that you completed, but you will, to some extent, be a novice in the other one. And, and many, many components of the training, the training path, they, they have to be that way. So, you know, uh, that experience that you acquire uh, may. So one thing I can say, when you do training after being more experienced, the amount that you gain from that training, it's uncomparably bigger. That That's not a question. And that makes makes a lot of sense, right? So yes, if you could practice for a few years, get a lot of miles under your belt, and then go back to a fellowship, what you learn from the fellowship does not compare to what you would have learned five years before, right? You have, you see things differently. 
you don't waste time trying to like figure things out. You, your your uh, learning is going to be very efficient. So there's a lot of benefit in doing that. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's that's uh, as usual. Pedro, what well said. Um, I, there's no there's no concrete pathway that fits every situation and every person here. Um, I think the important thing is try and be as honest and insightful about yourself as you can to yourself, and talk to the people around you. Um, take a take a, a large spectrum of opinions and realize mm -hmm. that we're all biased by our own experiences. Um, you know that your your description of flip, of flipping the switch if you decide to go back after you work for a bit is really critical that you're honest with yourself and that you can do that. I think everyone can do it. I think the minority of people do it well. And so if you really think you can do it, you should you should go for it because you like you said, you're going to learn so much more than you would have ten years or five years earlier. And we've had that experience, and I'm sure you guys have too in training people that have come back in. Uh, from working and some of them have been the most amazing experiences and some of them have been some of the worst experiences so it's it's all mindset and uh, just again trying to relish every opportunity that you have to learn no matter where you are in your life which as you point out earlier you know is is harder as we get older and our families become more entrenched and there's more issues and more academic stuff it's harder to do that but uh, it, yeah it's um it's great no matter where you are. You just got to be honest in your setup. I think Rishi might be muted. Oh, you're muted. Dr. There Goody. we go. You go. All right. Uh, one last question that is either going to be um, frustratingly insoluble or very obvious given our, our topic. If you had to pick one kind of surgeon to staff your hospital with, what would that specialty be? Well, <clears throat> I'll I'll get it. So if I'm I'm a business person, if I'm an administrator, someone with the type of training that we are discussing here is almost impossible to bid how much bang for your buck you get. You know, uh, someone with a background in trauma plus an additional specialty that takes care of complex things such as bad blood vessels and organs that are hard to mobilize, they can give you so much value because the role of those, uh, those surgeons in helping other service lines is something that's really intangible and administrators don't, don't have a, a clear notion of what, of what it is. But having someone like this in your staff uh, allows you to be more aggressive with the surgical oncology stuff, the spine stuff, and, and complex redos in the orthopod world, like infected redo joints, uh, the complex gynoc, complex uro-oncology. So all these specialties can benefit from someone that when things become difficult, they can be a very useful hand in the operating room. <clears throat> so as a as a uh, C-suite person, I would hire one one of us, someone of our, that shares our breed. Chad, you come from a different uh, environment, which it's, it's a little more socialized medicine to some degree. You, you, how would you argue with your C-suite people? 
Yeah, no, that's that's a very interesting take on it. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think in all environments, um, regardless of value to the hospital or remuneration to the individual surgeon. Um, yeah, I, I mean, someone with a broad skill set, someone with drive, someone with um, a 30,000 foot view of, of others, someone with a collective goal to improve the care of 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 everybody as best they can, someone who's collegial, like all those sort of things, I think. And, uh, you know, I keep saying this word now that uh, after Pedro planted the seed, but someone who's fun, like, like, let's all do this together. This is a hard job. It gets harder in certain years and easier in others, but let's all have fun. Let's go together. And so that's the kind of personality I would, I would look for, um, for sure. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, we like to close out the podcast every week with a couple of random questions. They're really more designed to let you folks, uh, people get to know you as people, maybe a little more lighthearted, maybe a little more personal. So I'm going to start with you, Chad, if that's okay. Um, I've known you for a long time. We've never worked in the same building, but obviously I, I hear a lot about you and, and we have a lot of overlap and mutual friends, uh, both from Canadian military and Feliciano. Uh, you know, just scrolling through some of your uh, recent bios on from the Alberta Health Services Doc of the Week page, uh, one of the things you talked about, and you already touched on it a little bit, was this, you called it neat in classic Canadian vernacular, right? It's neat that um, you can, you deal with old patients and young patients. But I always find that kind of interesting and challenging when I mean, you're talking about two groups. One, when, when you say TikTok to your trauma patient in room three, they, they're ready, oh, TikTok, let's get up and do some dancing, right? Your, your grandmother down the hall that you mentioned is thinking about her mantle clock. So how do you shift gears to relate to those two different generations so seamlessly? Yeah, I, I, well, I'm not sure I do it seamlessly. <laughs> and, and maybe it reflects my manic nature. I don't, I don't know. Um, you, you know, I, just a, a caveat maybe that answers that question. When I was um, a junior resident on the vascular surgery service in Calgary, Canada, I was in clinic with a vascular surgeon who um, still works. Maybe that's all I'll say. And there was a bad complication in a young guy. And that young guy was in, in clinic and he was, he was sort of explaining it. And the way that I saw that surgeon, who's one of the most social individuals I know, changed the cadence of his speech and just it, it couldn't have been more different than the 85 year old that we walked from in the other clinic room too and i was just like that's unbelievable and it, that was the seed i think that that probably um you know i grew from in the sense of patient interaction honestly as, as funny as that sounds and i so I, I love it. I, I love talking to, like I said, grandma about her crazy pancreatic cancer in a very different style, a different body position, a different everything. And then walking into that next room and seeing the 20 year old guy that was shot hunting who, or, you know, a, a, an inner city guy that is on meth. Like, I, I, I think the mix is great. I also understand why you know, most of our colleagues will gear or move towards one or the other and dislike the other that they don't pick. I, I get it, but I don't, I don't, I can't think of anything more fun. If you're going to be in clinic and you're going to be talking to people, let's, let's mix it up. It's fun. Yeah. Variety is good. 
Yeah. Um, speaking of variety, so uh, also from the, the the same source on your bio webpage, it sounds like that you and the family love to recreate at Ghost Lake near Calgary year round. Now, I've never been there. It's a 4.5 square mile body of water, according to Wikipedia, 11.6 kilometers for our Canadian colleagues. <laughs> um, and it's but it seems like it offers a pretty much a bounty of fun uh, from a full range of seasons. I mean, it's frozen from December through approximately mid-May. So what range of activities, given the season, uh, do you and the family partake partake at it, Ghost Lake? Yeah, you've done your research. So that, that means all you guys got to come up and visit, individually or collectively. <laughs> from there. And I, I do mean that. Um, have lots of fun. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hunter, I would say. Um, uh, but certainly lots of my colleagues and friends are. And so there's a lot of that in that environment. But for, for us in the summer, uh, it's a surf boat, uh, beautiful uh, fun day on the lake is surfing on and off, hanging out um, in the shoulder seasons. Um, you can really do anything that that you want. And then when it's frozen, most people are out on the ice. Now, I don't ice fish, but there's a lot of ice fishermen out there. Uh, we'll do a lot of skidooing. Um, skidooing? What's skidooing? Yeah, exactly. I, it's like <laughs> snowmobiling. Oh, is that what they Okay, that's the Canadian yeah. snowmobiling. Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what we call it in Canada. Ice boats. There's apparently an ice boat marina on Ghost Lake. Yeah, yeah, totally. What is that about? Is it is that sail driven or? Yeah, yeah. There's a group of folks that uh, exactly. They're in basically laser sailing boats, except they're on they're on blades. They're on skates essentially. Um, it's it's pretty, it's pretty wild for sure. And then they actually cut ice racing uh, courses or tracks into that ice. For the winter too and so there's a, a lot of a lot of folks with crazy vehicles out there i don't i don't partake in that but i watch it from my place and say i'll see you in the hospital soon <laughs> have you seen an ice boat accident oh yeah 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 really yeah. okay mm -hmm. they're they're large blades <laughs> i can only imagine yeah only imagine well pedro you didn't grow up you grew up you came to us from south america and you didn't grow up around any much in the way of ice fishing or uh ice boating i would reckon I know you to be a musician. Uh, you're sitting in your Zoom right now, and it's fuzzed out with that nice Zoom filter you have. But there's guitar after guitar hanging on the wall. So what of those instruments behind you is your favorite and why? And what are the musical influences that dictate that? No, it would be hard to pick a favorite one. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that that's what I do to, you know, clear the mind and, and enjoy. I would say the Fender Stratocaster is the the guitar I navigate towards, and a lot of it is is the influences. Um, David Gilmour, Mark Knopfler, and you go down the list: Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, and you one after the other. That's the guitar they chose. If it's good for them, good enough for me. Um, you know, I still remember the first time I heard the Dark Side of the Moon, and you know. I was born mid seventies, uh, but I tend to gravitate towards the the music of the prior generation. You know, the first thing I remember was uh, listening to the Beatles, which was like my parents' big thing. But uh, for me, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and all those guys from the late sixties, early seventies is the the music that I listen to. Listen to a lot of blues. And then, and then you have to collect the guitars because I mean, BB King plays a different one, and then Jimmy Page is a Les Paul, and then you—that's where the—there's where the addiction comes from. Yeah, you can't drink red wine with everything, so you have to do some wine. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
You no, but, it, but it's but it's funny because you know it's like surgery the technology goes around and there's i mean there's so many pedals that you can't see they're not on the wall and then all the technology digital modulation everything but and then you pick up a guitar that's a a, a perfect replica of something that was built in 57 which is really simple and it's the foundation to everything uh and i mean it's like surgery you still need the scalpel you still need the foundation. <laughs> Your yeah. story's always been fascinating to me. We've known each other since 2006 or five, I think, is when I came to LA County yeah. as a clinical fellow. And you had already done it and been finished training, been practicing in Brazil, and came and started as a research fellow, and then started over the entire process. And I think from a, we've all done multiple fellowships on here, but from a pure persistent standpoint to get to where <laughs> you are today, you've done more training. Um, my question for you is the training programs in South America, I've done some military exchange things in South America and the surgeons are very different. The trainees are very different. What Encapsulate those briefly. What are the differences between the South American training paradigm and the US? And what do you think of the strengths of each? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the training I received in Brazil. You know, uh, medical, it's a different system. Medical school is six years straight out of high school. You go into into your medical uh, training right away. Uh, my general surgery residency was three years. That's the full residency, but it's of an intensity that has no comparison to anything else I've ever done. You know, as a the the last year of uh, medical school it, for us, the it's called the internship. So you're basically an intern before you leave medical school. You start your general surgery residency operating the first day, like a junior resident is in the United States. So very intense. Um, I was in a, a, a extremely busy, busy trauma center in a in a major metropolitan region in the country. So as a, as a trainee, that was kind of a dream because I would come in for call, check in, go to the operating room and operate the whole night. You know, from trauma babe operating room, and that was the whole night, the whole day. So very intense, uh, saw a lot of things. Um, but then uh, the, the, the system that we have in the United States, it's, it's, it's very different. I mean, what we have in North America doesn't, doesn't compare the, the degree of organization and the thought process behind it, maximizing the system. And that part really added to, to what I brought from home. <clears throat> So when I said I, I wouldn't be afraid of going back to training, I really mean it, you know, after after being like trained and out and then go going back, not just to train again, but to be an intern. Uh, and that's why I emphasize you need to understand what you're getting into. You need your expectations to be to be set accordingly. Um, uh, I would. If I had the chance, there, there are many things in the American system that I think can be optimized. I think there's a lot of, it's a longer training, but there's a lot of wasted time in many ways. So I think things could be optimized. I think there's a lot of, a lot of the, the progression could be based on acquiring skills. And a lot of people put a lot of work trying to do that and create those different paradigms in training. Um, so it wouldn't be like a time thing it would be more, okay, can you do this, go to the next level? Um, but yeah, it was fun. I would do it over again. You're muted, Joe. 
Yeah, it's a great story. I really do enjoy hearing hearing all those adventures. Well, listen, we've we've eaten up a lot of your time, uh, but I do want to thank Pedro and Chad for joining us, uh, as well as my co-host Rishi and Milos. Uh, and I'm going to let Milos, the face now of uh, this podcast, um, take us out. Milos? A face for radio. Um or podcasts in this instance um thank you so much to to everybody dr kundi dr bose as always dr tashara dr bull um i look forward to joining you both for my vascular and hepatobiliary fellowships in the coming years uh, <laughs> make room if you would please um and to all our listeners we hope you've enjoyed this episode of tiger country and we hope you'll join us next time gentlemen thank you so much thank you You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bohavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.